Would you join me as we, as we take some time this morning and pray? Father, we first want to acknowledge that you are God of all, that you are the one who is in complete control of everything. There's nothing that is beyond the scope of your power. There is no situation so far, far gone that you cannot change it in a moment. We praise you for the ways that you have been at work in our lives, the ways that you are at work in our schools and homes and neighborhoods, in this country and indeed in this whole world. We thank you for the way that you have individually been doing your healing work amongst some of the folks in our midst today. And we ask for continued healing. We ask that you would send your peace and comfort. Be with the Bisbee family. Lord, there are so many things that we just don't understand about this world. So many situations that seem overwhelming and beyond our control. And yet you call us to keep our eyes on you. That in the midst of all of the heartache and anxiety, wondering about what things are going to be like, what what the future is going to hold, that when we keep our eyes on you, we can be assured that you will lead us and continue to do so forward into the unknown. There's nothing that will happen to anyone here today or tomorrow or next week that you don't already know. You will be with us. And Lord, even if those tough times are coming, I pray that you will remind us of your presence. Be that rock that we can lean upon. You know, it's, it can be easy just to kind of stay rooted to where we are. But when we say yes to you, O oh Lord, when we say, yes, I want to follow you with all of my heart, all of my life, all of my days, say, okay, but understand what you're getting into. You have called us to something bigger than ourselves, and we gratefully, albeit with some trepidation at times, want to step forward with you. Lord, will you help us to do so? I pray that you will be with each person here today. All of of the situations that are pressing on our heart all of those things that are consuming our brains, that we would be able to lay them at your feet in this moment and to offer you all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our body as we continue to worship you. Will you receive our praise, O Lord? For we humbly pray this in Jesus' name. We're in this series from here to there, and in some regards, at some level, we know that we are here in a certain place, in a certain time, and deep down, we know that God is calling us to go from here to there, and some of you have a clear sense of where your there is. Others of you are like, I have no clue what the next step is or the next moment, let alone what's way out there. 
But there is where God calls us, both higher and deeper, just like we just sang. Last week, we imagined a line stretching from here to there. We have a little picture, and actually you have that little insert with here to there on there. And isn't that nice and neat, you know, nice and straight and simple? Oh, if we would just walk on this little path, that would be so much better. You also have it on that sheet, and if you have a clipboard, that will be helpful for you. The question in this series that we are looking at is moving us beyond just thinking about one year, but even imagining five years out and asking, who do I want to be or become? Who do we want to be or become five years from now? And anyone can ask that question. You don't have to be a person of faith. But for people of faith, we actually would take it one step further and make it even a little bit deeper. Who does God want you to be or become today and five years from now? Here and out there. If we continue our present course, the question that might be the harder question, is that where we're going? Is that where you're going, where I am going? And if you don't like the destination or the trajectory of where you see this line going towards, then maybe it's time to get off that train if the destination doesn't look good for you. Last week we talked about when we think back five years and then we think about where we are now, If the last five years have not been a great destination for you, maybe it's time to get off that train. Franklin Roosevelt said that there are many ways to get to move forward, but there's only one way to stand still. So maybe your here to there is not a straight line, and I would hazard to guess that most of our lives don't look just like this. Does anyone have a a life that looks just like a straight line? And if you do, you're probably lying, okay? So we shouldn't do that in church either. Let's tell the truth. Um, So on that piece of paper, especially those of you that are maybe drawing or sketching inclined, what does your here to there look like? And you can take a few moments. You can draw a little something out. Maybe the there that God is prepping you for, there might be different ways to get there. There might be different things or what it's looked like in your past, but also in your present. I have a couple of pictures I'll show a little bit later on of this exercise that a few people have done. And um, maybe if you're bold enough to share yours, uh, we'll pass around some of your examples as well. Your life might feel less like a straight line and more like a maze. There's actually this cool book called From Here to There, and it has a whole series of drawings like this. This is probably maybe a little bit closer to what some of you are feeling about the course of your life. It's more like a almost pick-your-own-adventure or get-lost-in-the-middle-of-the-maze type of deal. And if everything was perfect, if all conditions were accounted for, if no curveballs were thrown at you, then yes, a straight line your life would be, as Yoda would say. A line headed, hopefully not just in this direction, but headed higher 
at an angle so that when we get to there, whatever there is that God wants us to be, that it's not just more of the same, but that it is something more, higher, and deeper, whatever it is that God is calling you to. What does your path from here to there look or feel like to you? The Bible is full of these stories, and we're going to look at one story in particular. It's the story of Elisha, and Elisha is going to be a, an important prophet. And later on this uh, late winter and into the springtime, before and after Easter, we're going to start reading a lot more of the prophets. So we'll be able to explore in more depth. But we're exploring the story of Elisha today, and we're looking at it in three movements and how this, his story can connect to where we are now and begin to understand in a little bit more detail of why it's so hard for us to get to there. I don't know about you, but even setting those short-term goals or long-term goals, for me it's both, it's difficult to get to a point where I'm like, yes, I achieved that. I got to some new breakthrough. And we don't always want this process, you know, we don't want to have to go through all of the long struggle and the heartache. We just want to get to that mountaintop experience. Why is it so hard to get to there? Our story begins in 1 Kings 19. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. Uh, That's our primary chapter today. And God has been speaking to his people through the use of prophets. Now, when we've looked at the Old Testament before, we've looked at a lot of different ways that God has chosen to speak to his people. But at this point, he speaks to a guy named Elijah, who is the prophet of prophets, he is the, considered the greatest of the miracle-working prophets. He has, at this point, just won a major battle over all of the prophets of the false god Baal. He put them to shame. They could do nothing. And God, in a mere word, overcomes all of these competing prophets. Now, why was God speaking through prophets? Well, he was doing that because his people were very disobedient. They were very rebellious. The king experiment was going very badly, and God needed to get through to his people in a new way. Now, prophets were often respected. They were um, highly revered, but they were often not listened to. You know, when there's a resistance in the heart, it's very hard to hear anything, even if it's coming from a person who's bringing the word of God. At this time in the history of God's people, most of them were walking far from him. Now, Elijah has demonstrated the total power in the very chapter just before what we're reading today. But then what happens? The queen of the land, Queen Jezebel, who was a fierce follower of Baal, did not like what had happened. And she says, you better get out of here. I'm going to come for you. And I'm coming to kill you. And what does Elijah do? He runs away. He runs off, scared into the desert. And it says he came to a cave where he spent the night. And and then the Lord says, what are you doing here? 
Why are you here? He ran all the way actually to Mount Sinai and found a cave on that mountain of God and was hiding in it. And God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then Elijah goes through this long uh, explanation of, well, uh, the people don't like me and they're trying to kill me. Life is hard. It's a horrible, no good, very bad day for me. Don't you feel sorry for me, God? God says, okay, this is what I'm going to tell you. Go back. Go back the same way you came. Travel to the wilderness. You're going to do a few things. But one of these things that you're going to do is you are going to anoint, that means authorize, the next prophet. And that prophet is Elisha. He's going to replace you as my prophet. And Elisha doesn't even know this yet. But it would be hard to fill and follow the footsteps of Elijah. You see, Elijah has done a series of, or will throughout his career, of about 14 different miracles. It's pretty impressive when you start reading through all of the things that Elijah is able to do through the power of God. And we come to verse 19, 1 Kings 19, 19. And this is where we find Elisha. This is the first movement. Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shepet, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. I'm going to stop there. So he goes and he sees this kid. Maybe he's a little bit older by this point. I don't know exactly how old he is. But do you notice that there's 12 sets of oxen? Anyone have experience with plowing of any kind or planting? Well, in that day, a lot of the work was done by hand. So the fact that there are oxen, these are the F-150 Super Duty turbo diesels of the day. They're the John Deere high-end tractor. They're the quarter of a million dollar combine that you use in the field. If your family had one, you were lucky. How many does, do they have? Twelve teams. Twenty-four oxen. That's expensive farm equipment of the day. Elisha is a rich kid. And he is set to do the hard work of taking over the Shepet family farms and industries. It's a good deal. It's a good, secure thing. He had a lot of influence in their area. 24 tractors. Do you know how much land you'd have to have in that day to justify 24 tractors? I'll spare you the, the thinking time. A lot. I didn't, I didn't want to calculate it either. A lot. So we know that Elisha is hardworking. He's working out in the fields. He's a wealthy son working the family farm, and his father is grooming him to take it over, run it all. It's a huge responsibility. It's an important calling in life. In fact, a lot of the farmers that I know, they, they would love for their children to take over the family farm or be able to pass it on. It's a wonderful gift or ability to do. But everything was about to change for Elisha. The second half of that verse says this, Elijah went over to him 
and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Will you help me? Will you stand right there? So we don't know exactly what the cloak looked like, but when I first became a pastor, what they did is they took this, it's called a stole, and they laid it over me just to kind of mark the moment. And I imagine that Elijah's cloak was probably maybe something a little bit, you know, maybe it was something that was a little bit nicer like this. But you can imagine this story. Here's Elisha. Sit at, you can turn around so people can see your nice shiny face, okay? And you can imagine he's out in the field, and all of a sudden, here comes Elijah. He's the man, the prophet. And he just does this. And he goes... And he just walks away. And Elisha's left standing out here in the field, probably wondering, what just happened? What is going on? Maybe I'll make him stand there for a little bit longer. You know, they've never met. But Elisha, he's going to know who Elijah was because Elijah was the prophet that everybody knew. You know, Elijah, he's the prophet that said, you know, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And it happened. He's the prophet that said, Lord, send down your fire. And it happened. Elisha is going to know that Elijah was someone that he wanted to be connected to. He's out plowing like any other day, and then this happens. Now, we don't know what this specific ritual is like, all right? And just to be clear, Elisha is not the prophet. He does not get this mantle or cloak yet. So we're going to just leave it right there. You can sit down. We don't know what that ritual is like. We don't actually really know what the specific significance is. A lot of those cultural things are lost to us through the years. But we can imagine that whatever the case is, Elisha knew what was happening in this moment. We know that it is an offer to come under the authority of Elijah. It's an instant offer saying, just like what Jesus did with his disciples, come, yeah, That's exactly where your mind was going. Come what? Follow me. It's a very similar type of deal. Elisha had everything, but he also understands what he's being offered. He's being offered a completely different there than he ever imagined was possible. Now, you could think it's hard, and you would be correct, for him to leave all that. It would be so hard to leave all that. But he jumps at the chance. The first half of verse 20 says, Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, first let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. But Elijah says, go on back, but think about what I have done to you. Make sure you understand the significance of what you are about to say yes to, to what you are going to embark on. You see, Elijah has just had his dark night of the soul where he's been crying in the wilderness and complaining to God, and God says, yeah, so what? Go back, 
This is the life I've called you to and the life that you are living. We might call that moment that Elijah had a come to Jesus moment if we were in the New Testament. Elijah wants Elisha to consider this offer that as a prophet, yeah, people will respect you, some people, but it is not an easy life. It is a life where you will endure great sacrifice. It's a life where you are not in control, and this is something Elijah has just had to learn himself again. So understand it full well. If we were in the New Testament, using New Testament language, we would say something like, count the cost before you carry your cross. Count the cost before you deny yourself and follow Jesus. Because a lot of people, trust me, don't think about it. Maybe they think, oh, I'm going to say yes to Jesus, and it's just like this little magic genie in a lamp that anytime I'm in trouble, I can just rub it, and things are magically going to get better. And friends, you know if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time that that's not always how it works and usually doesn't work that way. When things get bad, oh, I can just pray and it'll all get better, poof, and I'll feel better. You might feel better, but it might not all get better right away. We might sing, use me on Sunday, but then we get to Tuesday and we feel used and it's easy to turn our back. For Elisha to say yes and drop everything. He's embracing a life where God is going to use him dramatically, powerfully, but he will also encounter hardship and difficulty and opposition. He will not know what is going to happen from day to day, and that is what he accepts on the spot. How do we know that he immediately decides to do this? Read the very next verse. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. Your dad has just given you, or if it's today, your mom, has just given you the keys, the brand new keys to your John Deere tractor, and you decide that you are just going to drive it into the delta water. You are going to set it on fire you're going to take your entire livelihood and you're going to say, yep, quarter million dollar combine. I'm going to put it. <laughs> Thank you, wind. This is why I brought this. Hopefully I won't have to use the whole box. There we go. And he slaughtered the oxen. And then it says he took the yoke and he burned up the yoke and he cooked all of the meat of the oxen and then he fed all of that meat to the rest of the people of the town. Everybody knew what's happening. He's not only turning his back on Shappet family farms, he has just seriously destroyed their ability to continue in the status quo. I'm not sure why he did that particular act, but he did. Maybe it was to show that there's no turning back. There's no going back in the moment. He's walking away from the life and people that he knew and loved. The future that was ahead of him, he is saying, nope, God has a different there for me. And with one spark, there's no going back. It's a bold move one that took guts. If you inherited a house or anything and then 
had the ability to just give it all away or destroy it all, hopefully not destroy it, would we have that same boldness to say yes to what God had planned and completely upend what we had been thinking about? Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. That's the first part of the story. The second thing that happens is that we don't really know. We don't really actually know very much of what happens in the rest of the story other than we know that Elisha follows Elijah, just like those disciples later on would follow Jesus around. And assuming that you're following around the person that is God's mouthpiece at that point, hopefully you are learning and growing and discovering what it is that you're supposed to do. Years pass, one, two, three, at least seven or eight years, maybe as much as 18 years. And do you know that we get one detail of what Elisha did? In 2 Kings 3, it says, he used to pour water on the hands of Elisha, Elijah. This is what he was. Can you hold out your hand? Elisha, after his meet and greets, and Elisha would go, there you go. And he'd allow him, he was the Purell man. For seven or eight years, pouring water on Elijah's hands. Maybe after Elijah would do some rituals or something. And there's Elisha just standing there in the background, ready to pour more Pour after pour. No. It says his hands, not his head, okay? Pour after pour after pour, year after year. Do you know that's the only detail that we know that Elisha did for years and years and years? Years and years of following Elijah. Not a word, no fame, no glory, just pour after pour after pour. Okay, maybe not Purell. Maybe it was more like pouring like this. Just there in the background, serving, 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 allowing the ministry of Elijah to go forth in the way that God wanted it to go. Not expecting credit, but perhaps thinking, when's it going to be my time? How many years am I going to have to go through this? But then God speaks again towards the end of Elijah's life. And he tells Elijah that it is all about to end, that I am about to take you into heaven. So get ready. Elijah and Elisha start walking to a remote place. And this is the third movement of the story. It involves crossing the Jordan River. We've looked at the Jordan River before. We know that the Jordan River is not this nice little stream that you can just daintily hop across. It's a major river And when it's at flood stage, it's a dangerous river to cross. It's the same river that the Israelites first crossed when they entered into Jericho. And they had to walk through the Jordan River, which split when the Ark of the Covenant was brought before them. And now this is where Elijah and Elisha are too. And they get to the Jordan River, and he's probably wondering, what is going to go on here? 
And it says 50 men from the group of prophets. See, each town had a group of prophets. They're standing there watching. They're kind of witnesses to this all. And it says they watched from a distance as Elijah and Elisha stopped beside the Jordan River. Now, what you know of miracles so far and how God works based on what we've seen in the Bible, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. Great likelihood the water is going to split. And it says that Elijah took his cloak and he put it down or threw it down, struck the water with it, and the river divided and the two of them went across on dry ground. threw it down, and they walked across. It's hard. They walk across the water. They get to verse 9, and this is what Elijah says. Tell me what I can do for you before I am taken away. Tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away. And Elisha, this is a bold request. He says, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. Now Elijah, he is the prophet of prophets. He's the greatest prophet of that time. It's a bold request. But what if that same kind of request was within inside each of us? that God, you have been doing a great work in my life. You have been with me every step of the way. But I want to trust you and believe in you enough that you are going to do double what you have already done in the days to come. Can you imagine if we were to make that same request to God? You have walked with me every step of the way. You have done amazing things. Lord, I'm asking you to do twice as much in the days to come. This is a very big ask. And Elijah knows it. He basically says that in the very next verse, verse 10. It's kind of a very interesting verse. He says, you've asked a difficult thing. See, he's performed 14 miracles. So how many would double that be? Who's good at math? Okay, 28. Okay, I didn't want to throw it too hard of a math problem. He's saying, you've asked a difficult thing. So I've been able to do 14 miracles throughout my life, and people call me the greatest miracle-working prophet. You're asking basically to do 28, double the output that I've been allowed to do. What you are asking is a difficult thing. But if you see me when I am taken from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. So he kind of makes a little out for himself. Those are, those, th- those are the three movements of Elisha's life. That's it. And he hasn't done anything yet except pour water. It's so much to speak to us as we seek to get from here to there. Why is it so hard to get there? Why is it so hard to change, to move? And I know that there are lots of reasons for that, but perhaps the main one is that we don't really like or enjoy pain too much because change is hard, right? Yes. It's hard until the pain of staying where you are right now. You know where I'm going with this. Overcomes the pain of change. 
See, change is possible. We know it's true that in those moments of profound pressure, how is it that a mother is able to lift a car off of their child? How is it that someone is able to run into that burning building in the face of incredible pressure? Maybe not everybody. But change is possible. We are able to do really amazing things when the pressure is high enough. But in order for you to be able to get to there, wherever that there is for you, to get to where you want to be, it's going to take you some movement. I want to highlight just a couple of quick things. The first is this. It's probably going to require you to make some kind of radical, drastic action to overcome inertia. Who knows what inertia is? That's drawing us all the way back to perhaps high school. And it's okay if you're a little bit fuzzy on it. I actually went to the Physics for Kids website, which actually explains things in a very wonderful, wonderful way. It's a good reminder to understand a little bit more of inertia. Inertia is actually derived from a word that means a tendency to do nothing or to remain unchanged. Its Latin root actually means idle or lazy. And everything has inertia. That means that our natural default state is to just stay right here. Everything. I have this, this isn't just to hold burning matches. Remember last week we had the little domino here? This is a little bit bigger so it's easier to see. So this brick has inertia. I could stand here all day and it's probably not going to move. I could look at the house across the street and those bricks are still going to be there. In fact, we could be probably thousands of years from now come back and this brick might still be here. It might have a few little, bit, few little bits on, on the corner. But its tendency or its natural state is going to be, it's just going to want to stay there as it is. Newton had a first law of motion. You remember Newton? He's the guy, we all have a picture of him. Look at that beautiful hair. Newton is a guy who developed kind of a serious man. For those of you that are a little bit follically challenged, maybe that's some hair to, to aspire to. I, I mean, it's pretty amazing. And even though he was kind of, a, kind of a weird guy in many ways, he had these laws of motion that he developed. And his first law of motion had that part in it that said an object at rest does what? Tends to... Stay at rest. This brick is going to just stay there. You are just going to stay there. Unless acted upon by an external force. Something outside of itself. Everything in our world naturally wants to stay where it is. You know this on Sunday afternoons. Uh, wherever Huey is, and you're sitting in your chair and you're watching football and you want to just stay there and fall asleep and it's too hard to move and you want to get some more water, but it's like, well, I'm laying on the couch right now. I'm just going to stay here. It's too much work. Oh, the remote's over there. That's so much work. Everything wants to stay there. And we can act on it from an outside source, an outside force, and maybe we can get a little bit of movement. Maybe we can get a little bit of movement 
But it's not going to move very easy unless we have act upon, unless we act upon it by a proper force. I am not advocating that a hammer is always the right answer. I am not advocating that a hammer is necessarily the right force that needs to act upon you. I better do this so I don't make two. But with with the right force, what was going to sit here for almost forever can change in an instant. And for you to get to there may require some dramatic action in your life. It might require something big and meaningful. And see, sometimes we like that sort of stuff. You know, we're like, ooh, that's kind of interesting. But it's hard to change our lives. Do you know that most of the energy expended going to overcome inertia from movement or non-movement to movement actually is expended and there's very little left over to actually keep things moving. When I would, if I would hit something, I have to put a lot of force to get that to start moving. But then it actually doesn't go very far unless I would go back there and pick it up and throw it back. You can throw it back to me if you want. Thank you. See, we don't live in a perfect society. We don't live in a perfect world where we get to just do one thing and then we're just going to stay in motion. You know, Newton's second part of that law was if you stay at rest, if an object at rest tends to stay at rest, but an object in motion tends to stay in motion. That's the perfect ideal. But we live in the real world where things will always slow us down. That's why once your movement starts, once you break that initial inertia that's holding you to where you are right now, it will require at least a second movement. And you are not going to like this one. The movement is steady progress. This is not a sexy movement. This is not a movement that will have great headlines on a website or wonderful pictures, but you will require steady progress to remain in motion. Once you get moving, it will take more and more work for God to continue to shape you. And it might take more work and a lot of work to shape some of us, especially in our roughest parts. It will require steady progress for you to be able to remain in motion. Elisha experienced this year after year, pouring water for Elijah. There's not a lot of glory in this. You're not going to win awards. You're not going to get to go to a banquet. But once you have made movement in your life, You need to remain in steady progress or else what will happen? Things will go back to the way that they were. See, in our world, if we stop making progress, eventually we go back to our default state, which is where we are. Now, it doesn't look like much is happening when you're taking those steps of steady progress. 
It's not as dramatic as, you know, the, the makeover shows, whether it's body or home. It's not one of those 30-minute, look at me how I flipped this house and now it's amazing. Look at me how I transformed my body in 10 days. Um, this is not that. Often the change that we want to see, that dramatic, sudden, instantly visible change, is not likely long-term sustainable change. We want the dramatic makeover, but we don't want the process of getting there. Otherwise, five years from now, it's more of what? We said this last week. It's just me with more miles. If I don't want to engage in the process of making steady progress. If I don't keep moving, then it's just going to be me with more miles, maybe more heartache, maybe more wear and tear, certainly more inertia that wants to keep me where I am. Friends, I want to tell you, keep working. Keep sowing, keep watering, keep dreaming, keep building consistency day after day after day. You miss a day, that's okay. Start it up the very next day. Whatever that steady progress is for you, for the work that the Lord has begun in you, he will see it through to completion. But it's going to take your work as well. Once you've taken that critical, radical action and you've started that steady progress, you actually come to a third movement, and this is the sweet spot. This is the one that everyone enjoys. Number three, enjoy the fruit of momentum. When you have made progress and you start to see results, you get to that point where you start to enjoy the fruit of momentum. But the trick is that you don't get this without number one and number two. You don't get to just jump to enjoy the fruit unless you've put in the hard work to plant and tend and eventually see that fruit come to fruition. For Elisha, it was coming to a place where things come together. For years, he's been filling his life with all these small acts, pouring water, serving, being Elijah's assistant, doing whatever it took so that Elijah was able to continue what God had called him to do. And then finally, it starts this cascade of momentum. He asks Elijah for a double portion, and as Elijah is taken up into heaven, Elisha sees it happen. Let me read 2 Kings 2, 11 and 12. And then I want to come back to those drawings. As they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. This would be terrifying. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. The next verse, verse 12. Elisha saw it. And he cried out, my father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers of Israel. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. See, Elijah had said, if you see this, you will receive what you've asked for. He asked for that double portion. Take a look at that drawing for those of you that have actually drawn something. That line from here to there and maybe your line looks kind of crazy, okay? I actually have two examples that people have done um, 
where they described what here to there looks like. Here's one. I like this one. Actually kind of showing that there's a whole bunch of different ways to get here to there. I would never have thought of taking a submarine, um, but apparently this person did. This was their description of what here to there looked like in their life. The, for those of you that um, like uh, fantasy worlds, things like that, this next one will, will definitely appeal to you. This, it's a little bit hard to see, but over here it says, um, Trogdor the something dragons. And it's got this pathway that it means going around the dragons. But also you could take the great trade route of this way, or there's this uh, lake of, I can't read what that word says. There's like a lake of, lake of nothing or something like that. That was their interpretation of all the pitfalls to be able to get from here to there. I want to say that wherever you are in the midst of your maze, from here to there, God is with you. And maybe now is that point, maybe not yet, but maybe now. Maybe now is that point where you are going to start to see some of the fruit of momentum and you're going to get just a little glimpse of where God is leading you forward. We sang it earlier that maybe he, maybe he just lights that next step of the way. Maybe just that next step. I want to read what the next step was for Elisha. Chapter 2, verse 13. Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak. Remember, up to this point, he's been able to do nothing. He picks up the cloak, which had fallen when he was taken up. He returned to the bank of the Jordan River, verse 14. He struck the water with Elijah's cloak and cried out, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Then the river divided, and Elisha went across. And everyone saw what had just happened. And they said, the spirit of Elijah must be resting upon Elisha. Year after year of pouring water. And now he was the one walking through the water into all that God had prepared for him. But it took some dramatic action on his part at the beginning. And then year after year of pouring water, pouring water pouring water. When everything comes together over time, it is a privilege to enjoy the fruit of momentum in your life, but you have to get through one and two, usually, to get there. It's difficult to do drastic, radical action in your life, and it can be unbearable, my friends. It can be very uncomfortable to make steady progress. You will feel at times like you are just spinning your wheels and going nowhere. But stick with it. Keep at it. Because once you and me and we get to the point of enjoying the fruit of momentum, you know what? In Jesus' name, you become unstoppable. You can walk through water. Maybe not literally but you might just be able to. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will continue to lead us. For those in our midst today who need to take some radical, drastic action to break the inertia of where they are, I pray that you will give them the courage and fortitude to do so. For those who feel like they have been just pouring day in, day out, and not seeing a lot of return, 
Will you remind them that you smile and you say, well done for every step of progress that we make? God, I pray that you will allow this group of people to start to enjoy some of the fruit of that positive momentum that you have begun in their life and that it might even spur us one another on to further acts of love and service. God, help us to keep our eyes upon you in all that we see, in all that we do, remembering that you are the Lord of all. For it is in your name we pray. Amen.